Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Over the past several sermons in Matthew, we've considered the implications of Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, 16. Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the implications of this reality are world-rocking. According to verse 17, Jesus' small group of apostles, with Peter as their spokesman, would become the foundation upon which Christ would build his church, his ecclesia. In the Septuagint, ecclesia always referred to the assembly of the people of God. It always meant the national community of Israel, but now Jesus boldly speaks of his ecclesia. He's going to make something different than Old Testament Israel. In the New Covenant, there would be something different and better. And this new community, uh, the, the great change cannot be overstated. Verse 18 tells us that this new ecclesia would overcome the very gates of hell. The gates of hell would not prevail against her. Earlier in Matthew 19.29, it tells us that Jesus had bound the strong man so that the strong man's house could be plundered. And now his church would reap the benefits of that binding throughout the church age so that as it says in Revelation 23, that the devil can deceive the nations no longer. The time of the Gentiles was at hand. The scribes and Pharisees thought that they would usher in the kingdom through the ministry of binding and loosing according to the tradition of the elders. They'd teach the law and say, this is binding on you, this is loosed on you. And that through that ministry of the keys, some people were locked out of Jewish society because they didn't do as the scribes and Pharisees said that they should do. That was the ministry of the keys to the kingdom. But Jesus says that the authority to bind and loose would be taken away from these scribes and Pharisees and given to the church. That his disciples would have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And unlike the scribes and Pharisees, they'd get it right. Whatever they bound on earth would be what was bound in heaven. Whatever they loosed on earth would be what was loosed in heaven. And that that through that, they had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that for which Jesus had taught them to pray would become an increasing reality. What, what was the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That increasingly the church would make disciples of all of the nations. And that increasingly they would bind and loose and create a culture where every tongue would confess and every knee would bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we disciple this nation, that will be, uh, the nations, that will be increasingly done on this earth. We're part of that. Isn't that good news? But the church's efficacious spread and their overcoming of the gates of hell would not come immediately like the disciples hoped. Remember the three surprising follow-ups to Jesus' response to Peter's great confession in 1620. He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he's the Christ. It wasn't time yet. Secondly, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. That it wasn't going to be immediately into domination of the nations. He was actually going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. They didn't understand that, did they? Hard for them to wrap their minds around. And then thirdly, some of them would actually die, as Jake read for us today, that they would take up your cross, he said to them, and follow me. They weren't expecting that at all. They thought that they would sit at the right hand and the left hand of Christ in his kingdom and that he would dominate all of his enemies then. That was coming, but it wasn't then. There was a wait, wasn't there? But after this sobering warning that the kingdom would come through much tribulation, Jesus also encourages them with two truths. Those who obey will be rewarded even if they die in the path of obedience. Isn't that good news? We win no matter what. Verse 26 and 27, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Your sacrifices will not be forgotten and the rebellion of the world will not be forgotten either. Jesus will set everything right. 
But some of them would not die. Many would live to see the, this blessed promise of the keys to the kingdom and the expansion of the kingdom and the conquering of the gates of hell. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In 70 AD, the Son of Man came to judge an apostate Israel and the shell of the old covenant system, including the temple itself, was torn to the ground. The ceremonial aspects of the law that were fulfilled in Christ could no longer confuse the people of God because there was no place for those empty rituals to even be performed. The external showy righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was not going to be the things that bound and loosed the populace anymore. They would go to righteousness and, and morality and, and justice and mercy as they should. That, uh, so why the recap? Because our narrative today is thematically connected to what we've seen at the end of chapter 16. We now turn our attention to Matthew 17 and the mountain of transfiguration. I'm going to read the entire 13 verses, but this week we'll really only cover verses 1 through 3. Matthew 17, 1 through 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This morning we're going to look at the timing of the Mountain of Transfiguration, the triad of disciples that he brought with him. We're going to consider the Transfiguration itself, what it is, what, what happened and its significance, and then the typology of Moses and Elijah and what it has to do with this whole, this whole narrative. So let's begin with the timing. It's, this is six days later, or after six days, more precisely, if you look at what the Greek says, after six days. Matthew usually doesn't give such a precise description of the amount of time between events. But this time he gives a, a precise time stamp. In fact, this account of the Transfiguration is in all three Gospels and all three uh, synoptic Gospels. And all three connect the chapter 16 events to the Transfiguration happening within just a few, few short days of each other. Uh, one thing, a discrepancy. When we see discrepancy in the Scripture, we need to have answers for them and we need to point them out. But both Matthew and Mark say after six days. And Luke 9.28 says after about eight days. Which one is it? Well, Luke's about is not precise language, first of all. And six days is about eight days. But wouldn't you say that that's still pretty weird? You know, it's six days, six days, and then Luke says about eight days. One commentator said that the, in Greek culture they would say about eight days after as an idiom for somewhere around a week later. So he's just saying a week or so later. MacArthur suggests that both Matthew and Mark counted only the six full days between the events and Luke counted the day of the discussion, then there's six uneventful days and then the transfiguration at the end. And what would that be? Six days in between and the events on both sides and that would be eight days. Well, that, that one seems to make the most sense to me. So, to the hardened skeptic out there, I say to you, repent. 
You're grasping. Jesus rose from the dead and you are you know, making a big deal over whether it's six days or about eight days. It's excuses, isn't it? Once again, just like every other so-called contradiction that I've ever seen brought up, there are plausible answers, and there is to this one as well, isn't there? But the, the takeaway here of after six days is that there's an important connection between these two sections, between what happened in chapter 16 and what's happening here in the transfiguration. For, for that reason, many have interpreted the transfiguration as the fulfillment of Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And they say, well, He's coming in His kingdom in the transfiguration. We spent two full sermons explaining why that, that doesn't fit, but most obviously the Son of Man didn't come into His kingdom at the mountain of transfiguration. Nothing changed. His authority didn't change. He had authority before, and, but he, didn't have, he hadn't been declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead until after he rose from the dead. And then the kingdom in earnest didn't start spreading until after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So it just doesn't fit. Yes, the glory of Christ is revealed to Peter, James, and John. You see allusions to the veiled deity of Christ in the text, but we see nothing like the Son of Man language in Daniel 7, 13-14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men everywhere might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The experience is described in verse 9 of chapter 17 as a vision. Like the revelation, this is a symbolic vision of things that will take place. Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be exalted, but not yet. It's a vision to the disciples that these things will take place. That, that the monumental event of Jesus entering into his kingdom will take place, not that it has taken place. So, why the temporal connection then? To answer this question, we need to ask ourselves, six days after what? Well, six days after Jesus told the disciples in 1621 that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Six days after, verse 22, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. They didn't understand the importance of Jesus dying on the cross in order to usher in the kingdom. They didn't get it. Six days after that, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Six days after that, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now at last, six days after, Jesus encouraged them to persevere through hardships because th that their faithfulness would be rewarded, but some of them would actually live to see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. He's reassuring this inner circle of both His identity and the necessity of His death because no one seemed to understand that the kingdom would, how that the kingdom would come. That it necessitated the death of the Son of God on the cross and then His resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, the building of the temple, us, the church, through all of those events. So we see the timing here coming place right after this misunderstanding by Peter that the death of Jesus and their suffering was necessary. And six days later, we consider now this triad of disciples. Six days later, Jesus took with him who? Peter, James, and John, his brother. They're often referred to as the inner circle. Jesus had 500 disciples, didn't he? He also had 70 disciples. And he also had 12 disciples. And within that 12, he had three that were very, very close to him, most intimate of all. And who were they? Well, Jesus did most things with the 12, but there were some things that he reserved just for these three men, Peter, James, and John, his brother. Peter, James, and John were among the earliest of Jesus' disciples who had been with him the longest, Luke 5, 4-11. But the Bible doesn't say why Jesus chose Peter, James, and John as his inner circle. 
These three men were present with Jesus during special events. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke 8, 49-56. They accompanied him while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they were the ones that are here with him at the Mountain of Transfiguration. Thus, these three witnessed Jesus' greatest moments of glory and his darkest trials, didn't they? But why? Some say because they were among Jesus' first disciples, like we've already discussed. Some because these were the three disciples most capable of understanding and sympathizing. That's what one of the commentators say. I don't know where they got that, but that's what they said. And both of these answers might be true, or at least may contain an element of truth. But it seems that Jesus is putting special effort into these men to prepare these three for leadership roles that they would later occupy within the church. It is appropriate to see men who are capable of leading and to put an extra amount of time into them for the impact that they can make for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus saw that sort of promise in Peter, James, and John. Peter, of course, his real name is what? Simon. So what's Peter or Cephas? What is that? Well, that's a nickname, and it meant rock. Peter was a strong, hard man. It was upon him in particular and the rest of the disciples only by extension that Jesus said he would build his church. And as we saw in Matthew 16, 16, Peter was the first disciple to openly express faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And what about James and John? Well, these are the sons of Zebedee and they also had a great nickname. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Guys, bold and hard is good. We're in a soft, effeminate culture and, and Jesus picked as his inner circle the ones that he would use and spend the most time with, the ones he would pour into the most diligently. He picked the rock and the sons of thunder that were called that because of their great boldness. Mark 3.17 tells us that in Luke 9.54. Furthermore, John had a special affection for Jesus seemingly unmatched by the other disciples. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. John called himself that over and over again in his gospel. And would most always be found in close proximity to Jesus, even leaning up against him when they would eat. He couldn't get enough of Jesus. Guys, shouldn't that be us? Shouldn't we be people who just can't get enough of Jesus? But Jesus picks that kind of people. Hardened, bold people who can't get enough of Him is the kind of people that we should spend the most of our time with. It's who Jesus did, and I think we should be like Jesus, don't you all? And then James ultimately, of course, would be the first of the twelve disciples to seal his testimony with his blood. He was the first martyr. He would taste death prior to seeing the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So... The transfiguration seems to be for their particular benefit. For the benefit of Peter, James, and John. This whole episode, read read this with me, this whole episode, especially from verse 1 through 8, is narrated from their point of view. Let's read it with special emphasis on this. Ready? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. And he led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. In front of them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed who? Them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell down on their face to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be terrified. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This whole thing is told with them at the center of it, isn't it? It's all about Jesus, but it's for them. Well, why these three for this miraculous event? Even though Jesus has told them that none of these Three seem to understand that Jesus would die and that he would raise again in order to establish his kingdom. Jesus has told them again and again, but they, they don't get it. And they didn't understand why that they would suffer as well. You remember Peter, we've already looked at, that when Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, what did Peter do? 
He took him aside and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then James and John, later we see the same confusion. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are able. He said, yeah, the cup that I'm about to drink, you will drink. But to sit at my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those who have been prepared for my Father. What's the cup he's talking about there? Well, Matthew 26, 39, when he prays, let this cup pass of me, the cup of suffering and death. They didn't get, they're thinking we're going to sit on an earthly kingdom and it's all going to be cupcakes and roses. But no, it's going to be thorns. It's going to be difficulty. There's going to be strife. That through great tribulation you must inherit the kingdom of God. This whole mountain of transfiguration episode is centered around Jesus' glory being displayed in the cross. Look at Matthew 17.3. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Matthew doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke does. What were they talking about? Luke 9.30-31. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking, Jesus is talking in front of the disciples to Moses and Elijah about the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's what he's talking about in this mountain of transfiguration. And after the transfiguration in 17.9, as they were coming down from the mountain, what does Jesus highlight? He commanded them, tell no one this vision until the Son of Man has raised from the dead. He wants to make sure they get that. It puts you in mind of right after that Jesus told Peter that he would give him the keys to the kingdom. What did Jesus immediately do? Told them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ because he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. It wasn't time yet. There was a gap that had to take place. There has the suffering of the Son of Man and then the suffering of the church prior to 70 A.D. and the judgment that would come on that generation. When you look later in this narrative, it's more of the same. 17, 10 through 12. And his disciples asked him, Why then do some say that Elijah must come first? Because they wanted to build tabernacles and hang out with Elijah and Moses forever. But they just vanished away. But it wasn't about Elijah and Moses hanging out with Jesus forever on the earth. He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did whatever they wished. So the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. That In the same way that John the Baptist had died at the hands of the Jewish government, Jesus himself would follow and he would be killed by them as well. They had to understand that the path to glory was a path through suffering. If you don't understand that the path to glory is a path through suffering, when anything, when faithfulness threatens to cause you to suffer, you will refuse to be faithful because of pragmatism. You have to understand. Guys, that was true then. And if faithfulness demands that you suffer now, if you will ever see glory, you still must suffer. That is a universal truth. God's people are not pragmatists. They say, you are my Lord, what you ordain is right, and I will obey you. And if I must suffer, I am willing to suffer. And I trust you in the end that you will render to every man according to his deeds. They had to get that. Why? Because as Paul called them in Galatians 2.9, he mentions them by name. Peter, James, and John, his brother, seemed to be pillars in the church. If you didn't have strong pillars, you weren't going to have a strong church. If you didn't have leaders who were willing to suffer in the path of faithfulness, then you wouldn't have parishioners that were willing to suffer in the path of faithfulness. It's interesting to note the destiny of these three men. James was the first apostle to be martyred. We've already mentioned that. It tells us that in Acts 12.2. Peter said he was willing to die with Christ, but denied him soon after. But in the end, repented and served as a pillar in the church for many years, wrote two epistles, and according to history, died upside down on a cross in 64 AD before the Son of Man came in judgment in Israel. And then John, he certainly did not taste death 
until the Son of Man came into his kingdom. John lived longer than any apostle. Most would say all the way to 100 A.D. He wrote a gospel. He wrote three epistles. And he wrote Revelation where he wrote of the coming destruction of Israel just before it happened. So it makes sense, given the timeline of events, that Jesus would bring this triad of disciples who would model fidelity to the gospel through suffering in these contrasting ways. One, martyred quickly. One, obedient for a long time and martyred just before he gets to see what he so much wanted to see. And then John, who would be there all the way until he saw the Son of Man come and fulfill what he said he would fulfill in Daniel. But what exactly took place? in the transfiguration. What verse 2 tells us, he was transfigured before him, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This event is set up for a truly supernatural otherworldly event. Jesus takes the inner circle away from the crowds and away from even the disciples and takes them up to a high mountain by themselves. Put you in the mind of when the children of Israel encountered God on Mount Horeb, doesn't it? Or on Sinai, and the thunder and the lightning came and terrified them. It puts you in the mind of when Elijah was also on Horeb and has his revelation from God, doesn't it? The only comparable moment of supernatural revelation in Matthew is before Jesus' ministry officially began at the baptism of Jesus. Remember then that the heavens opened when he was being baptized. And... They saw a visible descent of the Spirit like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying the same words that we'll look at next week in Matthew 17.5. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And of course the baptism prefigures Jesus dying and raising again. And now he's talking to Moses and Elijah about what? Him dying and raising again. And the Father is well pleased with that. Peter didn't get it. Because he set his mind on the things of men instead of on the things of God. But Jesus wanted to make sure that he gets the point. They will be tempted to doubt the plan of God and the identity of Christ when he dies on the cross. They must remember back to these events for encouragement. Brothers and sisters, you're going to have hard times. Things are going to go poorly sometimes. Your faith is going to be rocked by the events that take place in your life. You are going to suffer. And we must look back to events where God has made Himself known to us so that we can stand during those hard times knowing that the same God who was God then is God now and I trust Him because the path to glory must go through suffering. It is the way of our Lord. It's the way He told us it would be for the apostles. And it is often the way for all of His believers, isn't it? We must look back to the faithfulness of God. This was the plan all along. And just because the kingdom of God doesn't arrive as they expected, it doesn't change Jesus' identity in the slightest. R.T. France says it this way, Jesus' identity of the Son of God, first declared in 317, is now reiterated with the same heavenly authority just at the time when His declaration about His coming suffering and death might have led the readers to question it. He is, as Peter said, the Son of the living God, and the living God Himself affirms it Himself after a miraculous display. Well, what does that miraculous display look like? Well, first it says that He was transfigured before them. In verse 2. Metamorpho. That's the word here, transfigured. It means to transform, to change the external form completely. What word do you think we get from that? Metamorphosis, right? He was, his outward appearance was transformed in front of them in a miraculous way, completely different than he had ever looked before. The Jesus who had been living for over 30 years in an ordinary human form. And that's, Jesus, you didn't look at Jesus and say, wow, it's God in the flesh, did you? You looked at Jesus and you said, oh, a man. Because although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that, that led to his being exalted. But that's how he looked to everyone, just a man. 
But for a moment, the disciples got to see him in that exalted state. They got to have the veil of his flesh peeled back to see the reality of this God-man who they only knew in part. That's what was taking place at the transfiguration. That they could see this man is no mere man. Yes, he's truly man. But he's truly God. And he's going to come into his glory after a period of suffering. And we're getting a, a preview of that glory right here. They partially see in Jesus the blazing glory of God. Remember in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's no mere man. That was and is always true, but they got to see it. From within himself, in a way that defies full description, much less full explanation, Jesus' divine glory was manifested in front of Peter, James, and John. He was transfigured before him. We don't get many details on what that transfiguration looked like, but we do get two. His face shone as the sun. Many pagans worshipped the sun because of its glorious radiance. Can the sun talk to you? Can it interact with you? Can it answer your prayers? No, can't do any of that. But many pagans worship it because of its, it's so big, it's so powerful, it's so radiant, it's so bright. Can't even look at it. Now we see the radiance, that radiance in the face of a man. Think about that. They, he's so bright, it's like the sun. You can't even look upon him anymore. This visual transformation is not so much a physical alteration as an added dimension of glory. It's the same Jesus, but now with an awesome brightness like the sun where you, can bear, you can't even stand to look upon him. Does that remind you of anybody in the Old Testament? Reminds you of Moses, doesn't it? Moses beheld the glory of God, his afterglow or his hinder parts as it says in the King James Version. And then afterwards his face glowed where people couldn't even look up on him and he had to have it veiled just because he had seen God. Jesus didn't see God. Jesus is God. There's the difference between Moses and Jesus and he's shining out of his own nature. One might better say with the dullness of earthly conditions temporarily stripped away so that the true nature of God's beloved Son can for once be seen by Peter, James, and John. The ultimate glory of the righteous in heaven are referred to as shining like the sun in Daniel 13.3. And also, you know what Jesus, what, what, uh, Jesus says about us after the parable of the wheat and the tares? It says that the, te- the wheat will be gathered into his barn, that they will be gathered, and that they will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their fathers. He who has ears, let him hear. That like Jesus, we will image him. How? Will our faces glow like the sun? Nope. Because the glowing like the sun was showing the glory of Jesus obeying the fullness of the law and dying on the cross for our sins, obedience to the point of death, that we will become like Jesus, becoming obedient and show the glory of God that we are unshakably committed to obeying King Jesus. You will shine like that, Christian. Do you shine like that, Christian? Pray, God, make me what you said you would make me. Let me shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. But not only his face shone as the sun, but his garments became white as light. Angelic beings are referred to as being like lightning. And their white clothes are mentioned again and again, that they were clothed in white raiment. But only God is referred to as being clothed in light itself. Others have clothing like lightning, and they're clothed in white garments. But God wraps himself in light as a garment, Psalm 104.2. And that's what's being looked to here. That Jesus is a God-like, he's a, he's a God figure amongst men. We've got it in the song, uh, How Great Is Our God. He wraps himself in light. Yeah, he does. But why? Because only God can do that and Jesus is God. 1 Timothy 6, 15-16 He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
undoubtedly the purpose of the transfiguration of Christ into at least part of His heavenly glory was so that this inner circle of His disciples could gain a greater understanding of who He was. Who are they dealing with? Christ underwent a dramatic change in appearance in order that the disciples could behold Him in His glory. The disciples who had only known Him in His human body now had a greater realization of the deity of Christ though they couldn't fully comprehend it. And that gave them the reassurance they needed after hearing the shocking news of His coming death. We also see in Deuteronomy 15, 19 that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. He brought three up there so they could bear witness to what they had seen. Jesus saw to it that these men could testify to this event. And both Peter and John wrote about the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, in a book dedicated to what? suffering in the path of faithfulness and not being disturbed by those afflictions because they have purpose, he writes, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him in the holy mountain. John later testified also in John 1.14, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have no record of James's testimony of this event. Can anybody figure out why? He died. He didn't get to write about it. He got to see it face to face, didn't he? He got to see it face to face. As MacArthur says it this way, As best they could with human eyes, these three men had seen the essence of God shine forth from Jesus. And now we turn to one last element of this narrative, these types in verse 3, this Moses and Elijah. Verse 3, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. He appeared to them talking with him. It's a conversation between them and Jesus and they are watching it because that's what it's all about. They're supposed to see Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament types, talking to King Jesus and they need to be listening to what's being said, don't they? Jesus is displaying his glory and there's some men who would have absolutely wanted to see it. Do you remember in Matthew 13, 16 through 17 when Jesus said... Blessed are your eyes, he says to the apostles, because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So now we have Moses and Elijah, these prophets and righteous men, who are getting to see what they saw and hear what they were hearing. The fact that they are on a high mountain calls to mind, as we've already said, Moses and Elijah, both of whom received revelation on Mount Zion or Horeb. These two men, more than any other, symbolize the coming of the Messianic age. And their conversation with Jesus marks him out uh, more clearly as the Messiah who comes as the climax of all of their expectations. There's also further connections in that both Moses and Elijah went up on Sinai to meet God and see His glory. Both men suffered rejection and hostility from the people to whom they were sent and so prefigured the experience of Jesus the Messiah. Elijah was taken into heaven without going through death, right? And mystery surrounds the end of Moses on Mount Nebo. After he died or whatever happened and they hit his, hit his body, God hit it and you don't even know what happened. So these two men, along with Enoch, became known as the Deathless Ones. That's what they were called. These Deathless Ones meet with Jesus on the mountain to talk about His coming death. It's amazing, isn't it? You have Elijah thinking he's going to usher in the kingdom by, having, by tracking down all the prophets of Baal and killing them all, and that doesn't work. And Jesus says, hey, watch me usher in the kingdom by being killed at the hands of these godless idolaters, by offering my life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We turn to Moses. He awaited a prophet like him, didn't he? Remember Deuteronomy. Turn there to Deuteronomy 15. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18.
starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Well, that takes us right back to our text, doesn't it? Remember, this is my beloved son, 17.5, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He will raise up a prophet like me from among your midst, and they will listen to him. He's saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Moses was looking for. We finish up our text in Deuteronomy 18.15, back at 16. This is according to all you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. When God revealed himself, they were terrified. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I have commanded. That there would be a last prophet who would be the full revelation of God. Does that remind you of the Hebrews text we just read in Hebrews 1? He's the fulfillment of everything that Moses was looking for. Moses was synonymous with the Old Covenant. We looked at last week that Jesus coming into his kingdom was the abolition of the Old Covenant system so that the New Covenant system could come in full force, right? Moses was synonymous with the Old Covenant, which the Lord gave through him. The Jewish scriptures were often referred to as Moses and the prophets. You've read that, haven't you, in the scriptures? And the Old Testament law was often called whose law? Moses' law or the law of Moses. Moses was unique among the Old Testament figures, but the people of Israel had formal prophets and Moses was a kind of prophet bringing them the word of God. I'm sorry, before the people of Israel had formal prophets, Moses was a kind of prophet bringing them God's word, wasn't he? Before they had formal priests, Moses was a kind of priest mediating between them and God. And before they had formal kings, he was a kind of king ruling over them in God's name. But in this narrative, Jesus is clearly marked out as greater than Moses. He is a greater fulfillment of this prophet, priest, king office. Both by the heavenly voice which spoke of him alone in terms never used of Moses and by the fact that Moses' face shined because he saw God's afterglow but Jesus is glowing in and of himself as he radiates as the Son of God and lastly by the fact that Moses and Elijah soon would disappear leaving what? Jesus himself alone to carry out the final act of deliverance Indeed, Moses pales in comparison to King Jesus and with the new covenant kingdom, the old covenant was passing away. Turn with me one, one more time to Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, where you get this comparison of Moses and Jesus side by side and their relationship to the old dying covenant and the coming of the new covenant. Remember, that's what the book of Hebrews really is about. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just by so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. This change, Moses was faithful over the old covenant, and now Jesus is faithful as a son, the very son of God, in the new covenant, whose house we are. The old house that Moses wrote about would be torn down, and Jesus would establish a new house, the temple of the Holy Spirit, who we are. If... We hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. If you're willing to, what? Go through the path of suffering to get to the glory. That's who you are if you're in Christ Jesus. You will shine as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. That's why Jesus tells Moses of a greater exodus that he will accomplish. From Luke we learn that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus, we've already mentioned this, of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were not simply standing there passively reflecting on the Lord's glory, but they were talking with him about 
his departure, his imminent sacrifice, which was the supreme objective and work of his earthly ministry. Departure here is from the Greek term where we get the word exodus. He's talking to Moses about the exodus that he's about to accomplish by going to Jerusalem and dying on the cross. In the departure that Moses had, God killed all their firstborn and Moses let them out. In the departure that Jesus leads, he dies as the firstborn raises from the dead and leads us out. He's greater, isn't he? He offers himself as the satisfaction for our sins by dying on our behalf, then conquering death on our behalf and giving us the Spirit. It's no wonder that he had Moses there so he could show Moses, this, I'm the prophet like you, but I'm greater than you. I'm everything you wanted to see. You wanted, you wanted to see. You wanted to hear me. Here I am, Moses. And listen, disciples, Moses gets it. You need to get it too, Peter, James, and John. This would be accomplished, as Luke reports, at Jerusalem. Unsurprisingly, it is Jesus' death concerning which he had prophesied to Peter, James, and John and the twelve six days earlier. So, Elijah also, turning our attention to Elijah, he awaited the promised glory of the Messianic kingdom. Perhaps the only other Old Testament man who could have stood with Moses was Elijah. Moses was the great lawgiver. And Elijah was the great defender of the law. The prophet was zeal personified, a godly man of unmatched courage, boldness, and fearlessness. He had a heart for God. He walked with God. And more than any other Old Testament saint, he was the instrument of God's miracle-working power in the Old Testament. He was the preeminent prophet of God, but he died without getting to see what he so desired to see. In his own words in 1 Kings 12.10, I've been zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's in despair. He wanted to see revival. But they're, the, everyone in that, they've forsaken that covenant. He wanted to see a new covenant, didn't he? He wanted to see something better. He longed to see... Jesus. He longed to see what Jesus would usher in. Oh, Elijah wanted so badly to see the glory of the kingdom. And God had supernaturally, I mean, God had supernaturally defeated the prophets of Baal for him. Elijah had led the people to track them down and kill them. Yet Ahab and Jezebel still wanted him dead. No revival came. Elijah was dejected and even wanted to die. In the end, God took him to heaven in a chariot of fire. But God revealed that he would raise up another Elijah like figure who would call people back to God's law with the same zealous spirit that Elijah had done. Remember in Malachi 4, 4 through 5. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah wanted to, he didn't want to be the Messiah, but he wanted to be the one that ushered in the Messianic age to call people back to the law of Moses. And God raised up another Elijah, John the Baptist, who called people back to the law of Moses. Jesus was baptized by this John the Baptist. He immersed himself in these teachings, went back to the perfect keeping of the law of Moses, kept it without sin, and died for us. Elijah was the... John the Baptist was the Elijah figure who was to come and would usher in the Messianic age that Elijah had hoped to usher in. We actually see that in Matthew 11, 11 through 14. You can turn there. We're almost done. Once again, this signifies the end of the Old Covenant. You see that Moses signifies the end of the Old Covenant with the coming of the Son who is over the, the new house. And now you see that the coming of this Elijah ushers in the end of the Old Covenant. In Matthew 11, 11 through 14, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Could it be any clearer? 
the very thing that he told us in 1628 would happen during the lifetime of some of those that were standing there. The destruction of the old covenant and the ushering in of the new would happen just like God said. And he's telling Moses and Elijah, hey, I'm paving the way for this to happen with my death in Jerusalem and then the coming judgment on those very people who kill me. It was significant that the discussion was about Christ's saving work through his death because that was the central work of his ministry. Yet it was the truth, it was that truth that the disciples found the most difficult to accept. Moses and Elijah not only gave confirmation of Jesus' divine glory, but of his divine plan. Their supernatural testimony, no doubt, later gave the apostles added conviction and courage as they proclaimed that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. They finally understood this was what God was going to do the whole time. Jesus is the predicted Savior and King that they were affirming before that, pe- that both Moses and Elijah are affirming before these three apostles. And his divine plan is unalterable. He doesn't want them to be shaken when it unfolds. Jesus' death and resurrection were an inescapable part of God's plan. Without which redemption from sin would be impossible. The disciples had to understand that Jesus' coming, the first time to die and raise again, was as much a part of his plan as him coming again in glory. Because it is by his atoning sacrifice that he brings those who trust in him into right relationship with the Father once and for all. Putting an end to endless sacrifices done again and again and again that Jesus was sacrificed once and for all for us and then rose again from the dead to be king and gave us the Spirit so that we could become like he is. And that's really the whole point of this is that Except a grain of wheat fall down in the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, doesn't it? Jesus died. He did exactly what the transfiguration, what the discussion in the transfiguration said he would do. The shining forth of his face like the sun and of his garments being like light, those were visions to point to a glory that he would enter into which was centered around the discussion that Moses and Elijah was having. Big deal. I mean, the, shining like the sun, wrapped in light, that's all well and good. But the angels aren't going to be singing, Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power because you were shining like light and you were wrapped in garments like light. They're going to say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain who obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore he's been highly exalted and given a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father, that we follow him now in that. Can I make my face shine like the sun or my garments be like light? No but I can have the glory of God manifested by my obedience in following Jesus even through the path of suffering to which this mountain of transfiguration pointed. Let's follow him knowing that the reward will be worth the sacrifice and some of us will live to see. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this testimony that you gave to Peter, James, and John. We thank you for them being pillars of the church And we thank you that we are spiritual stones built into a holy temple, dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. Lord, empower us by your Spirit to be like you are, that we can display your kingdom, and that we would shine like the sun in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And amen.